Pelvic Posse, and welcome to the Empower Your Pelvis podcast. It's Amanda Fisher. I've helped thousands of people with pelvic floor issues, and it's totally my jam. Here, you can listen to expert interviews encompassing all things related to pelvic health. That's pee, poop, sex, and everything in between. You have a pelvic floor. Yes, you. We all do, and it's time to start talking about these issues that arise, but more importantly, how to improve them. I am so glad you are here to join us. Now let's head into this week's episode of the Empower Your Pelvis podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Empower Your Pelvis podcast. I'm Amanda. And I'm Marin. And today we have Dr. Stryker along with us. She is a gynecologist out of Northwestern out in Chicago who specializes in sexual medicine and menopause. Dr. Stryker, thank you for coming on today. We appreciate it. As I was just telling you, our podcast is not really chatted about menopause or a lot in the sexual health realm yet. So I'm excited to break open that barrier here with you today. You know, one of the things you mentioned is that a lot of the population that you see is postpartum. And one of the things that people really aren't thinking about is that postpartum morphs into perimenopause sooner than you think. Yes. <laughs> That's one of the big myths that we're always talking about is people think perimenopause and menopause and they're thinking grandma and nothing could be further than the truth. You know, the, the average age to enter menopause in this country is 51, but that's average. So what that means is it is not unusual for a woman who's in even her early 40s and certainly by mid 40s to be going through these perimenopausal hormonal changes. So it's a common. <laughs> I love that yeah. you say that because we've had a couple couple patients, I would say probably in the last month, I've probably had two that have walked in around 46, I think of age of 46, and then 48 who have both gone through menopause. Well, and particularly because women are delaying pregnancy. You know, it used to be that when you think in terms of who's getting pregnant, what kind of postpartum patients are you going to see in your, you know, used to be 20s. And that is certainly not the case yeah. for all the obvious reasons. Women are very often delaying pregnancy. So it's not unusual to be mid, late 30s or even early 40s. Very hmm. cool. Interesting. Thank you for sharing. How did you get into this field and how long have you been doing this? Well, I've been a gynecologist for decades and I actually started off as you're kind of variety, you know, does a little bit of everything, obstetrics and gynecology and surgery. And then I decided that what I really loved was surgery. So I did give up obstetrics about 15 years ago and my area of interest was minimally invasive surgery. And I'm also a writer. I always have been. I was actually an English major in college, English and oh my gosh. Lord knows how I got to medical school, but that's a whole nother <laughs> And so I was always writing also. And so my first book was about hysterectomy because my pre-surgical consultations were so long that I thought, well, I want to just put this all in writing. And then I continued to write. And what I found that women really wanted to know about was sexuality, hormonal changes. So I started really kind of just focusing more on that and then wrote a book about sexual medicine, Sex Rx, Hormones Health and Your Best Sex. I have it. I'm so happy to hear that. 
But then as as time went on, I I started getting more into the menopause world. And the reality is, is that even very good gynecologists, for the most part, are not experts when it comes to menopause. It's not something that it's taught, certainly not in medical school. And even during residency, very few people get any kind of a comprehensive education. And I didn't either. You know, this was something that I learned later. I think like a lot of people that have expertise, it's not something that you start out knowing. It's you have an interest in and you and you follow that interest. So I've always been on staff at Northwestern, but I was doing general practice and surgery. And I was brought on by Northwestern five years ago and hired as faculty to start a really the first of its kind center in the country that we focused very specifically on menopause and everything about menopause, you know, hot flashes and vaginal dryness and everything you can think of. So I started the menopause center. And then we also realized that sexual medicine was a huge part of it because we have women who are in their twenties and thirties who are having painful intercourse and problems with libido and, and difficulty with orgasm. So we started that center. And then I recently started a vulvar center, which is probably one of the busiest of all. And what makes our centers so unique, in addition to the fact that we offer this expertise, is that it's collaborative. I could not do what I do without my pelvic floor physical therapist. We have three of them with who are within 15 feet of me, and I could use 20 of them. I mean, every one of our patients basically ends up getting pelvic floor physical therapy. And we have our sex therapists and we have our general therapists and we work with dermatologists and we work with bone specialists and the menopause patients. And we're all physically in the same place. And that's kind of unheard of. You know, you can only imagine, I don't know in in, in your world, but when someone refers a patient to you, and if you want to talk to the referring person about that patient, you got to get on the phone and call them. Mm -hmm. And in our clinic, our physical therapists walk across the hall and say, I have so-and-so here, and this is what I'm finding. And hey, could you stick your head in and maybe examine her and see if it's changed from your initial exam? And then we can you know, really get together on it. And it's a unique situation, which is amazing. (laughs) No, it just sounds like eons away for us, but what a fun niche, like to have that all under one roof. It's really wonderful. It's it's much better. I mean, not only is it nice for us, obviously, as as clinicians, but from the patient's perspective, I mean, they are beyond thrilled that when I say you need pelvic floor physical therapy, and of course they've never heard of it, <laughs> not only can I tell them what it is, but I can introduce them to the person who will be doing it and can do the, the 30 seconds, hey, this is who I am. And this is, you know, what you're going to be experiencing when you come back. And it just makes all the difference. And I yeah. feel like there's more patients than that will actually go to pelvic floor physical therapy because not only did you tell them about it, but then they got to meet the pelvic floor physical therapist right then and there. So they already developed a little bit of a relationship of knocking right. down those barriers. Yeah. Where- That's absolutely right. And our biggest problem, quite frankly, is that we don't have enough pelvic floor physical therapists. I could literally use at least five more. <laughs> so if you want to come here, we have- I, know, I'm like- I was there. I worked <laughs> over at 680. 680 is where my office used to be on the first Yeah, floor. so that's where I was with Leslie Lowe. Well, Leslie I... Lowe is who's in charge of our physical therapist. Yeah, so um, I was with her. Yeah, we have, a, we have a wonderful group. They that are really Kansas. all extraordinary. And I know that yeah. if you work with Leslie, that you are also extraordinary. Yeah, it was wonderful. And it's it was very convenient being down the hall because we were down the hall from like the OBs and the midwives. And right, stuff. right. So, yeah, here we have to call and then we usually talk to, you know, a nurse and then they call us back, but... A little bit yeah. more time consuming, yeah. but hopefully we'll figure out how to create something similar to what you have here and make that a little bit more. It acceptable. can be done. It can be mm-hmm. done. Yes. So 
wonderful history on all of that. What do you find within the menopause, I guess, quotes, because I know that branches out to perimenopause and so many other areas. What do you find that women don't really know? Maybe it's the whole menopause side of it, but what (laughs) do they not know that you wish they knew more about? Well, what we find is that unlike puberty, when a girl goes through puberty and her mother sits her down and tells her what to expect, it's the rare mother that sits her daughter down and tells her what to expect about menopause. And part of that is it's still a bit of a taboo topic. And part of it is, quite frankly, our mothers didn't know a whole lot about yeah, it. So it's yeah. really to impart that knowledge. And so what that means is that people are blindsided. And because their doctors aren't talking about it, and we know that they're not talking about it, they're really walking into this, which every single woman enters menopause at some point without knowing a whole lot. So when we think in terms of the top myths, well, myth number one, we already talked about that it's going to hit sooner than you think. You know, that everyone always thinks it's someone who's older. And in fact, we see women in their 40s and that's normal. That's not early. That is normal. Now, we do see women who are even younger in their 30s, but those are women that generally enter menopause as a result of maybe cancer treatments or genetics or some other issues. So typically we're looking at the 40s. People don't expect that. Number two, that is a big surprise is people expect hot flashes. They do but they don't expect them to be as severe as they are and they don't expect them to last as long as they do. If you were to go up and say to a woman, hey, how long do you think those hot flashes are going to last? She goes, I don't know, you know, maybe a year, two years. Well, a very good study was done, which shows exactly how long they last. And overall, we're looking at an average of seven years, but that's in Caucasian women. Black women, it's an average of 10 years. And the population is forever. So this idea that, oh, you know, I'm just going to tough it out for a year or so, and then it's going to go away is not a good plan. The second thing about hot flashes is that everyone has this idea that, okay, it's miserable and it's uncomfortable and it's going to get in the way of my wearing sweaters and, <laughs> and being in warm rooms. But what they don't realize is that it's not just about not feeling your best, but it's also about medical issues that come as a result of hot flashes. You know, it's not just about, it's not just about quality of life. It's also about length of life. You know, so specifically Mm -hmm. women that have hot flashes are the women that are increased risk for cardiovascular disease, stroke, bone loss, even some cancers, cognitive function. And so this idea that hot flashes are harmless is simply not true. Every single Mm -hmm. time someone has a hot flash, they have a surge of cortisol, There's an inflammatory response. And particularly for women that have severe hot flashes that go on for a very long time, it's going to have an impact. So even if you look and say, for example, the black population, we know that black women tend to have more severe hot flashes than Caucasian women or Asian women, and they last longer. There's a reason that many black Mm -hmm. women, not the only reason, but there's a reason that many black women are at higher risk for developing heart disease at menopause and early on. So you know, that's, that's the other big myth out there. And then the other thing that a lot of women are kind of blindsided about is the impact of menopause on your territory, not just the vagina, but also the bladder. And that's something that women are not being told. Even women that are aware that they might develop some vaginal dryness or maybe some pain with intercourse are not told 
that this also is going to impact their bladder, specifically urgency, that got to go feeling, current urinary tract infections. Because you know, and I know that there are estrogen receptors, not just in the vagina and on the vulva, but throughout the genital urinary tract. And so when women start getting problems with urgency and recurrent urinary tract infections and they're getting antibiotics and they're getting cultures and then they're getting yeast infections and it's like, oh my God, please, someone just give them a little bit of vaginal estrogen and this is all going to go away. And that's another big mystery out there. And, and I think, you know, the, the overall message that I always want to get across to women is, is number one, we know a lot about this stuff. But not everybody knows a lot about this stuff. If your own doctor doesn't have the answers, it doesn't mean that the answers aren't there. It just means you need to get yourself to an expert. And mm-hmm. all of this stuff is solvable. You know, the, the words that you will never hear me say are, you just have to live with it. No, you don't have to live with painful sex. You don't have to live with urinary urgency. You know, I know I'm preaching to the choir here because <laughs> you do all day, every day. But you know also how few women are getting that message from their doctors. Yes, absolutely. Can you tap into a little bit of that with our postpartum girls? Yeah. So, who, so how we kind of mm-hmm. think about it, like hormones have shifted after you've had baby. What I've heard and I, it's like you kind of go through how your body's reacting in those postpartum mm-hmm. months is similar to menopause with the way progesterone right. is up, estrogen is down, but how, from your expertise, how would you describe well, that? You know, it's interesting because when I first wrote my sex RX book, I did not have a section on postpartum. And my editor, and very often this is how this goes, she says, well, how could you not have a section on postpartum? And I said, well, you know, it's just a short part of someone's life. And she said, no, you, you have to, you have to. And I started to think about it and I thought, she's right. Because for a lot of women, that's when this cascade begins, that they might've had totally enjoyable, pain-free sexual activity prior to pregnancy. And then not only the the sleep deprivation and the body changes, but the hormonal shifts basically sabotage things. And even when, you know, their estrogen levels go back again after they finish nursing, suddenly that pain is there and they don't understand why it doesn't go away. Yeah. And then when they go to see their doctor, all too often they're told, well, it's in your head because everything looks just fine now. When in fact, it's not in their head, it's in their pelvis because... You know, their, their <laughs> muscles have gone into keep out mode because yep. they had all this pain again, which is, you know, what mm-hmm. you are doing every single day. Mm-hmm. But so many women don't get that help. They don't find their way to someone like you. So they start this journey of painful sex that starts with the postpartum. And then as time goes on, the pelvic floor muscles, of course, only get tighter and only get more painful because with every single attempt that there's pain, you know, it's 10 steps backwards mm-hmm. and then menopause hits. It's like, are you kidding? You know, now we're back with not only the tight, painful muscles, but now you've once again got vaginal dryness. So that's why it is so important to address these issues at the postpartum, because otherwise they are starting down that road of lifelong, not only painful sex, but urinary difficulties bowel. You know, and no one ever wants to talk about the bowels. We got to talk about the bowels. The same women that are having problems with their bladder are the same women that either have chronic constipation or they're losing stool. Yeah. Yes. You know, no one's talking about it. That you know, is the one yes. question. And then it's like, thank God you asked. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the one question I think we see like the referral coming in and it doesn't say anything about bowels, but as soon as we ask it, 
even like, they're like, oh, I'm fine. You're like, okay, how often are you going? And then you ask, are you having any leakage of stool? Or like you go to the bathroom and you go back a few hours later to go pee again and you wipe, is there any stool there? Then they finally are like, oh, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I have fecal leakage. And you're like, whoa, that's a couple pieces. Because a lot of times I think even good doctors, they don't know how to ask the question. And, and so I give a lot of lectures in the medical community. I mean, I talk to a lot of in the consumer and, you know, with patients, but I also am out there academically talking to doctors and I basically give them a script. And my script is many women in your situation experience, you know, fill in the blank, whether it's, you know, that they lose stool or this or that, are you having problems like that? Because when you do that, what you're letting this woman know is she's not weird. This is common. Common and normal are not the same thing. Mm-hmm. And it's not normal to lose stool when you don't want to, but yeah. it is common. And when you bring it up and when I bring it up, it's just such a relief. Yeah. It's such a relief. I, I'm doing a podcast. It actually, um, my podcast is, is the menopause podcast. And I just taped one that will air probably in September, October, but it's about pelvic organ prolapse and cystoceles and rectoceles and, you know, how this happens and what you can do. And one of the things I talk about is that women who have a rectocele, which of course is a weakening in the floor of the vagina so that the rectum is bulging through, that the only way a lot of women can have a bowel movement is to splint, to put their fingers in the vagina and press down. And when I mention this to women, they look at me like, are you kidding? And then when I tell them, no, actually a lot of people do this, and then they'll kind of go, yeah, I do too. <laughs> you know? Because they just think that they're the only one. Yeah. That's why it's so important to have these conversations. Yeah. You mentioned like um, topical estrogen or giving yeah. patients that. How often do you feel that you guys are moving in that direction or how beneficial is it? I guess the your population that you're seeing, how many people do you feel that you're doing like the hormone replacement? Close to 100%, I would think. Okay. So when we think in terms of hormone therapy, Certainly, we're looking at systemic therapy, which is really primarily for um, hot flashes, bone health, cognitive function. And then when we look at local vaginal estrogen therapy, we are looking at women who have the kinds of problems we've just been talking about with Mm -hmm. not only sexual um, issues such as pain and vaginal dryness, but also just feeling kind of irritated and burny and the urinary symptoms. And really, all of those women are going to benefit from some kind of local hormone therapy. And while primarily our our first go-to is always one of the options for local vaginal estrogen, which is sometimes a cream and sometimes it's a good ring and sometimes it's a tablet and sometimes it's a suppository. It depends on, you know, which part we're treating and what we're treating. There's, you know, people don't realize we're treating both inside and outside and it does make a difference. Mm -hmm. Um, In cases, some cases, both. We also very often will give um, along with a local estrogen, we use a local testosterone because many women are not aware that in addition to estrogen receptors, in the genital urinary tract, but there's also testosterone receptors. And these are also extremely important when it comes to lubrication, elasticity of tissue, good collagen, all of those things that you need in order to have vaginal and vulvar health. And not everybody needs that little extra bit of testosterone, but we find that many women do. This is one of those things that is what we call off-label 
which means that the FDA has not given their blessing. It doesn't mean it's illegal. It doesn't mean it's bad. It just <laughs> means that we have to be a little bit creative in terms of looking at the medical literature to see what's going to help someone, even if there isn't a product that was designed for that purpose. Um, sometimes we use DHEA in the vagina, which is mm -hmm. a building block for both estrogen and testosterone. There's also an oral drug called Aspina, which stimulates estrogen receptors in the genital urinary tract. And then, of course, we have a, a CO2 laser program, which is also um, useful, particularly for women who have breast cancer, who quite frankly can safely use estrogen, but sometimes either they don't want to or their doctors have told them not to. So we always like to offer non-hormonal options as well. So, you know, when we see women who are having these vaginal, vulvar, and urinary tract changes, it might not always be estrogen, but it's going to be something that, you know, because when they come to us, a lubricant is not going to do it. You know, by the time they've gotten to us, they have tried a bucket full of lube and if it worked, they wouldn't be waiting three months for an appointment with us, right? And But we do talk a lot about lubricants because there's a lot of uh, lubricants that are not good for vaginal and vulvar tissues. I have a, um, one of my podcast episodes is, I think it's called something like, you know, is your lubricant poison or something along those lines. I remember if that was the exact title, but <laughs> the idea that a lot of the lubricants out there, a lot of the common lubricants that people buy, like a lot of the KY products, et cetera, have a very, very high osmolality, which yeah. basically means mm -hmm. that they can not only dry out tissue. I mean, think about this, <laughs> lubricate the tissue and it dries yeah. out the tissue, but can also break down the tissue and cause someone to have a lot of irritation and inflammation. So even something as simple as switching someone to a lubricant, which is vagina healthy and vagina friendly can sometimes make all the difference. Mm -hmm. I didn't know there were so many different types of estrogen products yeah. out there. Because as you were saying that, all I could think of is we've, I've got a postpartum gal who is given topical estrogen, but it's in a tube and she has to insert it vaginally and press it up but she has so much pain inserting that in that now she just puts it at the top. So we could actually ask her doctor possibly for a different type. Well, the other thing also is she should not be using the applicator because she needs to treat the vestibule. So, you know, essentially she should squirt the cream out onto her finger and then apply it generously. You know, some people have this idea that, oh, you should just use a little dot. No, you know, it should go all over the vestibule, the opening to the vagina. It okay. should go on the urethra and go north and, and help your clitoris a little bit. Give your clitoris a little love. Yes, that's what we did. We are like, the tissue's really stuck here. We've got to get mobility there. And, and if you can't get through the door, it doesn't matter how nice the room is. So just to put estrogen in the vagina is not going to do it. And as far as all the options, so this is why I wrote my book, Slip Sliding Away. <laughs> this entire book is about genital urinary syndrome and menopause. This entire book, because there is a lot for a woman to know. She does have choices. I'm a firm believer in being a partner in this. And, mm -hmm. you know, and, and so when someone goes to see their doctor, because if not everyone's going to come to our clinic, right? So if they're going to walk into a doctor, I want them to walk in saying, okay, I know about the cream, but I also know about the ring. And I also know about the insert. I also know about DHA. And I also know about Aspina. She may be educating her doctor. <laughs> and she can ask for what she wants based on having read about it. Because I go into detail in terms of the pros and cons of each product and how do you use it and, um, and do what we call dual therapy. That the idea that sometimes we treat just the vagina, sometimes we treat just the vestibule. 
but in most cases you need to treat both and you don't always treat them the same way, Mm. which brings me to a really important point. It makes me crazy when women say that they have been treated for painful sex or vaginal dryness and no one has examined them. These women need to have Mm. an exam. Because first of all, they're not getting examined by their gynecologist or they'll go to their general doctor and they'll say, oh, well, you're 50. Of course, you're dry. Here's a prescription for estrogen. But they might have lichen sclerosis or they might have something or not only to mention, you know, pelvic floor tension. So I always tell women that that's your first red flag is if someone has written you a prescription but has not examined you, has not done a very careful evaluation in terms of what's going on with the tissue, what's going on with the muscles, Hmm. then they can't really treat you. No, That sounds basic, but trust me when I tell you that we see women every day who have been treated without an exam. Wow. That blows my mind. Especially with like medicine or something topical, the fact that they're giving it to them. Because we see people and sometimes who they haven't had an exam either. And their doctor has just gone based off symptoms, which I'm glad they still send them here. But, you know, at least they're seeing you when you're examining them. Yeah. Right. Even worse is when women, especially young women, are sent to a sex therapist because they're being told it's all in your head. Yeah. And they haven't been examined. And then they, even a good sex therapist, you know, you can do therapy till cows come home, but if it hurts like hell, you can't talk away the pain. So one of the requirements that we have I'm the only one busier than our pelvic floor physical therapists or our sex therapists. Um, and one of the requirements we have to have an appointment with one of our sex therapists is you must be examined by one of our doctors, one of our clinicians. We have advanced nurses, you know, physician assistants who are great. But you need to have an exam because we need to make sure that there isn't a physical component that needs to be addressed as well. And I cannot tell you how often we identify women who are told it's all in your head and you just need therapy and we find something. And then they're just so angry, you know, that that they want. That's what we see a lot of here is they're just being passed from doctor to doctor to doctor. And finally, somebody's like, hey, have you seen a pelvic floor PT? You guys got to go get that checked out. And we're thankful, but it's usually been quite a few years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we are never like the end of the line. We're always the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth opinion. And we've had women who literally have been looking for help for 10, 12 years. And then they come to see us and one of our clinicians will figure out what's going on literally in 10 minutes. And, and they're just like, you're kidding. That's how shocking. Come, how come I shocking. ever <laughs> Have you guys seen that change though over the last couple of years with social media? Because that is one thing, like we're seeing people recognize it from Instagram or TikTok and coming in from that. Yeah, but the point is, is that they're self-referred. Their doctors aren't sending That's them. That's true. Yeah. Okay. You yeah. Know? And, and actually we're doing a, a study right now that we have everyone who walks in the door, we have them fill out a questionnaire that says who referred you. And we are asking, was it, was it a doctor? Was it on social media? Did you, you know, read one of Dr. Stryker's books or maybe listen to her podcast? And what we're finding is that about 90% of the women that, that find their way to our clinic, um, our sexual medicine and menopause clinic, were self-referred. Wow. By one of those means, you know, that they read my book, listened to my podcast or saw something on social media. I mean, wow. even like on Instagram, and I'm just, I was kind of late to the game with the social media thing. So I'm, I'm trying to catch up and anyone out there, please follow me on Instagram. I need more followers. <laughs> What's but your handle? It's at Dr. Strike, S-T-R-E-I-C-H. And okay. this week I put, I put a simple little video on 
that I almost didn't put it up because it just seemed so obvious to me. And it was, when do you stop using your vaginal estrogen? And, you know, basically it's when you die. And I thought that this was kind of, you know, a no brainer. And I think last time I looked, I had almost 20,000 views and a million comments on it. And this is like news to people. And that's when I kept to keep reminding myself that the things that we do every day mm-hmm. are not common knowledge. And so we have to do what you're doing. And what I'm trying to do is, is to get out there and give everybody this information, which is really going to make a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's incredible. They are definitely more conversation starters after people follow you and then they'll stop you somewhere or they come in the clinic like, you're from Instagram and you're like, okay, hi. (laughs) Like they already know you. They know my kids. They know everything. Social media is a strange thing. And in Chicago, you know, I do the news here every week. I'm on TV and I do a lot of radio and I've done a lot of national news programs as well. You know, today's show, Good Morning America and all that. So People do recognize me, mm-hmm. um, but I am starting to have more people recognize me from from social media, which never used to happen before. Wow, just incredible because it's all you know internationally too. So you get to hear from people from all over. Which well, is yes, really fun. and you know when I look at my analytics to to see who's listening to my podcast and and who's you know buying my books because you can tell all of that. Mm-hmm. Like, oh my God, I'm number one in Australia. You know? <laughs> Who knew? Wow. Yeah, so yeah, it's not just US. I think my podcast last time I looked, it was about 80% US and 20% other places in the world. It's kind of amazing. That's good. Yeah. It'll be very cool to see in the next five to 10 years what that's like too and what that's done for you. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Well, on top of that, something that we ask everybody who we interview is what is something you are learning, doing, or teaching at this time? And you can answer all three or you can answer one of them. I am going to tell you about my journey right now in the world of cannabis, because it turns out that I've been doing some research and that at least, and I think the numbers are higher, but I think, but I know that we know that at least 25% of women who are experiencing menopause symptoms, whether it's hot flashes, low libido, difficulty with orgasm, sleep, are turning to cannabis. And the reason that they're turning to cannabis is number one, their own doctors aren't helping them. Number two is they have, unfortunately, a fear of estrogen, which is unfounded. Estrogen decreases breast cancer, doesn't increase it, but that's a whole other discussion. And so that's a more of that later. Yeah. But um, second podcast. But they are on their own turning to cannabis. And this is a world that I've been doing some research in, not only to find out what women are doing, you know, in terms of how are they how are they doing it are they vaping are they doing edibles are they applying it to their genitals you know what are they doing what kinds of cannabis who's advising them hmm. and then what is their perception in terms of is it helping and it's really a fascinating world the other thing also is that we know that women postmenopause metabolize cannabis differently than women premenopause because estrogen hmm. is actually in the metabolic pathway of cannabis and therefore it's metabolized far more slowly and a lot of women are are not aware of that so in my second book my hot flash hell book originally i was just gonna have a couple of paragraphs on cannabis Hmm. and then when i started to write it and i thought oh my god i could do a whole book on this and so i do have a chapter on cannabis not only 
theoretically, there's no good research on it. I'm just putting it right out there. No one has done those mm-hmm. studies, but we do know about the science of the of the uh, cannabinoids. And but more important, if a woman does want to dabble, how she cannot get herself into trouble. So, um, so I do have a chapter on that. I also did a podcast on cannabis, which has done very, very well, which also tells you something. And so that's something that I'm learning about because when I wrote my book, my hot flash hell book, um, which has been out less than a year, just maybe right around about a year. Um, the truth of the matter is, is I didn't learn anything writing that book. I was writing what I do every single day in the clinic. This is my world. I know this. I've published it extensively. I didn't have to really do any significant research. This is what I do. The cannabis part, oh my God. It was, I had to do a lot of research, a lot of research. So that's what I'm learning new. The other chapter that I actually had to research that I couldn't just write is the one about, I called it herb spices and wishful thinking. And it's about all of the um, botanicals, all the herbal things out there that people use for hot flashes. And most of them have not had any scientific studies. And of the ones that have had scientific studies, any of them have been proven not to work. There's really only you know, a couple that have been shown to have any effect at all. Yet women are spending like billions of dollars on this stuff. And I really took my time with that chapter and took every single thing, you know, whether it was John Kwai or Black Kohash, and I reviewed the medical literature to see, you know, what in fact we do know and hmm. know a lot more than people think. And most of it is not good. <laughs> so wow. stay away from Chinese herbs. Those are really scary. We don't know what's in there. And a lot ah. of it's really dangerous stuff. When you did the cannabis study, did you find one working better postmenopausal? And I'm just thinking for my mom's sanity, like for <laughs> sleep and let's say anxiety. Yeah. So, so again, when I, when I talk about what works well, keep in mind, this is patient perception as opposed to a real study. You know, a real study, as you know, is you find a thousand women and you give 50% of them a placebo and 50% mm-hmm. of them the real stuff. And you don't tell what's what and you keep them on it for a year and then you could look at the data. <laughs> This Mine is a survey, which means that I am saying, do you think it helped you? What is your perception? And the numbers are pretty striking. Um, In fact, I'm I'm giving some lectures on it coming up in some of the uh, academic conferences. And Hmm. sleep, um, we are looking at well over 90% of women say that the cannabis helps them sleep. In general, we tell them to use an indica. And we tell them to use a tincture because the tincture has a, a fast onset and you don't get that, doesn't last too long. So the next day you're not sluggish. The edibles are, are tricky. You got to be careful with the edibles. So um, give your mom a copy of my book. And then she- I, can, I know, I see it behind you. I'm like, okay. I'm and then she can Top Flash Hell has the cannabis chapter. In slip sliding away, I talk about cannabis just briefly in terms of vaginal CBD, um, which uh, CBD is a vasodilator. And we know that anything that's going to increase blood flow to the vaginal walls and the vaginal and vulvar tissue is helpful. Again, there is zero, zero, zero data. This is all anecdotal. And I'm a very evidence-based kind of person. So I'm always very careful to say when we don't have the evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, but we <clears throat> have the science behind it, which shows that theoretically it should be helpful. And we know it not to be harmful. Incredible. And my next book, which I'm working on now, I, I put it aside because of the podcast, which took a lot more time than I thought. But the next book I'm writing is called Put the O Back in Mojo, A Postmenopause Guide to Orgasm. That's I love that. Because <laughs> no one's talking about that. And when we look at sexual complaints postmenopause, libido is number one. Difficulty having an orgasm is number two. And 
I mean, it's easier to fix someone's ability to orgasm than it is to fix their libido, just saying. <laughs> libido right, is I so feel like we have better luck with that part. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, yeah, no, we have our pelvic floor physical therapists are doing some really, really interesting work with mapping and orgasmic function. And you should really interview one of them because they're doing things that, to my knowledge, no one else is doing. It's pretty interesting. Cool. That's awesome. Wow. Love to have you reach out to. Yeah. Who's still there? Who are the physical therapists there right now? We have Toshi. We have Colleen. Yeah. Um, we have Catherine. We had Shantae moved away. I don't know if you knew Shantae. She did. Yeah. She did a lot with endometriosis. Oh, yeah. She had the endometriosis support group. I think yeah. she's in Atlanta now, but I'm not 100% sure. Oh, yeah. yeah um, I know Toshi. I used to work with her at my first job as well. Toshi is, well, they're all amazing. I mean, yeah. I, I am so, so lucky. But yeah, and each one of them kind of, they're all good. And then they each kind of have their own area of things that they're interested in, their own area of expertise. And, and again, the collaborative nature is so amazing. I have yeah. this one patient who I saw yesterday who's a very, very complicated patient. And, you know, she saw like a million pelvic floor physical therapists in New York and LA. And now, of course, she's with our group and wow. cannot, you know, and she sees both Toshi and um, and Helene, because they do different things with her. Wow. How specialized they are. So she alternates back and forth. And that kind of collaboration is, is very unique. Yeah. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. I'll reach out to Toshi for sure. Well, thank you for joining us today. Before we leave, can you tell our clients, our followers where they can follow you at? Well, they can follow me on Instagram at Dr. Strike. They can follow me on Twitter and Facebook. And that's at Dr. Striker. My books, of course, are all available on Amazon. It's called Dr. Stryker's Inside Information Series. And the last two are Hot Flash Hell, which is obviously about hot flashes and slip sliding away, which is all about pelvic health, vaginal and bladder health. And it has been my pleasure to spend time with like-minded people who have the same mission as we do here in Chicago. Thank you. I can listen to you all day and we will be ordering (laughs) these books as soon as possible. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, Pelvic Posse. I want to thank you so much for joining into this week's episode of the Empower Your Pelvis podcast. Can I ask you a couple of favors, please? Number one, can you like and subscribe to this podcast so that you can continue to empower your pelvis forever so that you will never miss out? Number two, can you leave us a rating and a review telling them how amazing we are and everything that you have learned about your pelvic health? And then number three, if you haven't seen the video version of this podcast, you can go over to youtube.com forward slash C forward slash empower your pelvis for all your visual learners out there. We have all types of great visuals in there for you to not only listen to, but to also watch. Thank you so much again, and make sure to give your pelvis some love. Until next time, peace out, pelvic posse.